You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, the Apostle Paul found himself in the city of Athens. And as he explored the city, he saw statues of various men and various gods all through the city. He walked through their marketplace and he saw and observed their commerce. He was immersed for a short while in their their social interactions, their social life in that city. And when he finally had the opportunity to publicly address the Athenians in the Areopagus, he said to them, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious because I have observed the objects in your city. And if you transported the Apostle Paul to our city and you dropped him down on the National Mall and he walked from the Capitol past the Washington Monument, past the memorials and the food trucks, past the American flags and the thousands of people with their faces buried in their phones. Once the apostle arrived at the Lincoln Memorial, I think he would get to the top of the stairs, he would turn around to the crowd, and he would say, Americans, I see that you are very religious because I have observed the objects of your worship. Of course, he would be talking about our political lives, our social lives, our American way of public life. We have been working through a series on the the Christian practices called For the Life of the World. And the whole idea of this, this series, the theme of this series has been this. God has given us these Christian practices, these spiritual disciplines, not so that we would become more narcissistic and engage these practices merely for my own personal little spiritual life. No. He gave us these practices so that we could order our lives in the world for the life of the world. But today our series is going to shift direction just a bit. The first portion of our series was aimed more specifically at our practices. But now we are going to turn the attention of our series and speak more specifically about our offices. It's appropriate in a year where people are going to be running for political office that the church take a moment to consider what our office is from God in the world. We're going to look at the prophetic, priestly, and kingly responsibility that the Lord has given individual Christians and also the church as a corporate entity for the life of the world. He has given us these offices so that we would inhabit them for the life of the world. The aim of this part of the series is a pastoral public theology that will discuss the intersection of politics, citizenship, society, and the offices of the church. And we're going to aim to avoid the narrow fixation on electoral politics and the cult of the presidency. And today we're going to talk about living as a prophetic church for the life of the world. Living as a prophetic church for the life of the world. And we're going to hit this through two points where we see our prophetic identity and our public responsibility. 
our prophetic identity and our public responsibility. So let's look at our first point, prophetic identity. Now, many of you are familiar with Acts 2. You've heard it a thousand times. And there are different angles from which this text is explained. But I think there's a really important one as it relates to our purposes for this morning that often goes overlooked. And it is a deep, rich, biblical theological development that takes place in Acts chapter 2. Here's what I want you to see in Acts chapter 2. In Luke's account of the events on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he alludes to a number of earlier prophetic traditions representing the coming of the Spirit upon the church as an event of prophetic installation, prophetic anointing. What is happening in Acts 2? There is an anointing that is being laid on the church, and it's a prophetic anointing. It's the installation of a prophet if you're paying attention to what happens in the biblical theology of the text. Now, let me break this down. In the previous chapter, the, 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 the narrative explains the ascension of Jesus. And this is a critical connection that we have to make. The ascension of Jesus is connected to what happens in Acts chapter 2. Jesus ascends to the Father. He goes back and he leaves his disciples. But while Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down. Okay? I want you to see this action. And this connection is a significant one because what, what Luke is doing is he's connecting this story in Acts chapter 2 back to some other stories in the Old Testament. And those who were listening to this text at first would have seen the connection immediately. Here's what he's doing. In this ascent and then outpouring of the Spirit, he's connecting us to the Exodus ascent of Moses at Sinai. And if you go back to Sinai, if you go back to Exodus 19, it says that when Moses was going up the mountain, it says that, that the Lord descended on it with fire. Tongues of fire. Moses ascends up the mountain, and what does he come back down with? He comes down with the moral and ethical rule of the community's life. That's what he returns with. Then move forward to another ascent and then outpouring. In 2 Kings chapter 2, the prophet Elijah ascended to heaven by a chariot of fire. Okay, Acts 2, tongues of fire. He ascends by a chariot of fire. And what Elisha asks of Elijah, he says, give me a double portion of your spirit. And he says, if I'm taken up from here, you'll get your double portion of the spirit. And when Elijah is taken up by the chariot of fire, the spirit is poured out on Elisha so that he can continue the prophetic ministry of Elijah. It empowered him to complete Elijah's prophetic mission. What we need to see is that Acts chapter 2 is what you would call a Janus event in biblical studies. January is a time where we look back at the year that passed and we look forward to the year ahead. Acts chapter 2 is looking back to the prophetic ministry of the prophets beforehand. And it's looking forward to the prophetic ministry of the church. Jesus is the final ultimate prophet 
But his church in union with him continues to carry out his prophetic ministry in the world. But that's not all we have. In Peter's sermon in verses 14 through 36, he references the prophet Joel. And he says the fulfillment's happening right here. When the spirit is poured out, tongues as of fire appear above them. And there's a sound of mighty rushing wind. And the people gather together, people from every different tribe and tongue and nation, right? And they're trying to figure out what's happening. And they actually ask the question, what is happening here? And Peter says, he steps up and he says, you want to know what's happening here? Verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Verse 17, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Verse 18, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Then what does he do? He takes David, Israel's most celebrated political leader, and he properly puts him in his place. He says he died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And then he also identifies David as a prophet who, quote, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. And then he says that with David, we all are witnesses to the resurrection. Do you see what Luke is doing? I'm trying to drill down the biblical theological point before we take off in a more pastoral direction. Do you see the rootedness? Do you see the biblical theological anchoring that we have in this text for the identity, the prophetic identity of the church. Look at it. Listen to it like this. He places a prophetic identity squarely upon the church as one, the handler of the moral and ethical rule by the pouring out of the spirit, the moral and ethical rule among God's people through the outpouring of the spirit, echoing back to Moses, who was the premier prophet. Two, by giving the church this role where they take up the prophetic role of the greater Elisha and continuing his prophetic ministry. Three, the living fulfillment of the prophet Joel where the spirit is poured out filling sons and daughters to prophesy. The church is that fulfillment. And four, the church as witnesses with David who saw and who speak about the resurrection of the Christ. We must own a prophetic identity but not only that, we need to appreciate what comes with that prophetic identity. If you read through the prophets, they were strange people. They were misunderstood a lot. They were not often liked. You know, their role was to tell the truth, but also there were times where they told the future. So, so biblical studies scholars often say they, they would foretell and foretell. Now... We are familiar with the idea of foretelling, speaking the truth. We're to be a community governed by truth. But we also leave out the foretelling. But I want to tell you, family, we do have a, spe a future of which to speak. We have a future to speak on. It's a glorious future. And we have been given a prophetic role, a prophetic identity as the church. This is important for us to own. But there are some ramifications for that. I like how David Blight in his biography of Frederick Douglass, and you know Frederick Douglass is one of the most persistent critics of the moral depravity of his country in the 19th century. Persistent. And he was, if you listen to that biography or read through that biography, the trials that he faced in being a truth teller 
are staggering. He was attacked by mobs. His character was viciously attacked in public media. He was was denigrated. He was physically brutalized. But this is what David Blight says about him, that he often appealed back to the Old Testament prophets. And David Blight says this about Frederick Douglass. He not only used the Hebrew prophets, he joined them. And what we're getting from Luke in in Acts chapter 2 is that we aren't just to use the prophets. We are to join them. That's who we are as the church. Prophetic identity. But let's look at our second point. Public responsibility. Now, we have to appreciate this entire text. It begins in a room, but it becomes a very public thing. And it has become a really popular bifurcation to think about values as something that remains private. And then there's this mysterious, neutral public square. I don't see any kind of adherence to such a fallacy in Acts chapter 2 or in the remainder of the book of Acts or in the remainder of the New Testament. This isn't recognized as a viable way for Christians to think. But let's begin. Let's talk about this, this public responsibility. Look at what Luke is doing. In verses 9 through 11, the list of nations is given in in this passage. But what you have to appreciate is that it echoes lists from this period that celebrated Rome's position as ruler of the inhabited world. In other words, Rome would put out propaganda about the empire, the Roman Empire. We rule this place. We got people from this part of the world and this part of the world and this part of the world. And this demonstrates the the extent, the scope of our empire. But do you see what Luke is doing? He's leveraging, he's leveraging this, this Roman propaganda tool and he's countering it. And he's saying the outpouring of the spirit, the launching of God's kingdom is the true empire that pushes over every bit of Roman imperial pretension. That's what he's doing with this list. He is pushing back against the the Roman ideology of imperial rule. He adopts this to show the true empire belongs not to Caesar, but to Jesus, who is reigning Lord and Savior over all people. He's upending Roman imperial ideology. And he's providing his audience with a stronger sense of who they are as Christians and a proper understanding of their relationship to the Greco-Roman world. This new phase of the church. Don't miss this big picture, fam. This is a new phase in the life of the church. Okay? In the life, the gathering of God's people. This is a new phase. But do you see what we have at the very beginning of the church's new phase of life, we have the most utterly political statement that could be made. Verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It may be a little veiled to you, but Christ is the way you talk about Messiah or King. God has made him Lord and Christ in a day where Caesar was claiming to be Lord and Savior, Christians were not allowing themselves to be co-opted by political partisanship. They were not allowing themselves to become co-opted by Roman imperial ideology. No, they understood themselves to have a prophetic relationship 
to the world for the life of the world. Here's the thing. People in Rome were looking to the state, looking to Caesar for the things that only a true king can give. And does that sound familiar? People looking to the state to try and get from the state the things that only a true king can give. Gene Healy wrote an article called The Cult of the Presidency. And this is what he says, quote, The chief executive of the United States is no longer a mere constitutional officer charged with faithful execution of the laws. He is a soul nourisher, a hope giver, a living American talisman against hurricanes, terrorism, economic downturns, and spiritual malaise. The modern president is America's shrink, a, a social worker, our very own national talk show host. He also is the supreme warlord of the earth. This messianic campaign rhetoric merely reflects what the office has evolved into after decades of public clamoring. The vision of the president as national guardian and spiritual redeemer is so ubiquitous it goes virtually unnoticed. Americans, left, right, and other, think of the commander-in-chief as a superhero responsible for swooping to the rescue when danger strikes. And with great responsibility comes great power. Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government put it well. Listen to this. Americans distrust government, but want it to do more. Do you see this? Americans distrust government, but want it to do more. People are looking to the government like others look to a savior. This is the re could this be one of the reasons why elections and, and electoral politics and, and presidential campaigns have become so fraught? Because we're not just trying to place a chief executive over our nation. We're trying to place the right kind of savior. We have too many of our ultimate hopes wound up into a president and whoever's sitting in office. It's the cult of the presidency. And to say cult is to speak of it in terms of worship. In terms of service that we render. Healy is on to something. But here's the deal. We have a word of life to offer, family. I think one of the most important things we can do in here is let our non-Christian friends hear how we are to envision our own responsibility in the world. That's important. Our self-identity. This is important. We have a word of life to offer. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Which doesn't make us disengaged citizens. No. Our heavenly citizenship makes us the most engaged kinds of citizens who don't play by the rules of American politics. We, we operate according to a higher ethic, a higher moral standard than mudslinging and name-calling and, and playing games with, with social media to win votes. We don't play according to those rules. We have a higher ethic to which we are held accountable. The church, listen, the church must primarily critique the church, seeking to strengthen its moral, ethical, and covenantal fabric by repentance. 
our prophetic role, family, is first and foremost related to the church. In other words, our, our heaviest critiques should be against a lack of conformity in the church to the scriptures. And it's only after that that we secondarily become critics of culture. The only way that our, our culture, our world will be able to take our prophetic initiative seriously is if they see that we're taking our, our own medicine first. That's the only way they'll have any respect for what we say. It has to be a both-and posture. That's crucial for ordering our life in the world for the life of the world. The, listen, the church that critiques the world without critiquing itself lacks humility. And the church that critiques itself without critiquing the world will lack in charity. Ethicist John Bennett says this. He says, our country has almost lost the capacity for self-criticism or for listening to criticism for others. The church is the one voice in our national life and in our local communities that is under no ultimate American authority. Its duty today is to seek to counteract the fog of fear and defensiveness which envelops our national life. Do you see? He says, our country has lack of capacity to hear outside criticism, but the church within the, the United States has a higher responsibility and a higher, a higher obligation to be that voice of clarity, dispelling the fog of, of error and falsity. That's a responsibility we have ethically. Our political life and actions are not just things that we do, family. They're things that they're doing things to us, which is to say it's formative. It's formative. The way in which we we engage politically is forming us. We are responsible to the Lord and to the world for what we are doing and who we are becoming in our political dealings. We're responsible for who we're becoming. We're responsible to the Lord and to the world. We are our brother's keeper. In every way you could think of that verse. We are our brother's keeper. And for the prophet, as McLuhan said, the, the medium is the message. Locating our identity in the offices through union with Christ aids our formation and lends to the credibility of our message. This is our public responsibility. And we see this truth play out in the church through formation, through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, for example. Think of the book of Acts chapter 4. What happens? They engage their prophetic responsibility in the, in the public, okay? In public. They don't allow their world to set the agenda for what is to happen in public. They engage publicly. They are told to no longer speak in that name. And then Peter and John say this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is what prophets do. They can't help but speak of what they had seen and heard. And check out verses 14 through 36, Peter's witness, his sermon. Faithful churches and believers don't just collaborate 
with social trends. They offer meaningful resistance where it is necessary so that the world can hear from the Lord. Now, this is really critical for us to identify. We aren't just to go along with the social trends. Charles Marsh, who's a theologian out of the University of Virginia, he said this, the church is so caught up in being relevant that it has forgotten what it means to be peculiar. We are God's peculiar people. And that's our calling. We must offer meaningful resistance. Where there is a rejection of the ethic of life, we offer resistance. Where there is a rejection of embracing the full humanity of image bearers, there must be resistance from the church. We must embrace the idea that we're going to be unpopular at some level. Many of us are so committed to being liked that we're no longer prophetic We're fearful. I need people to like me. I need them to endorse me. I need to get ahead. I'll never get ahead if I start speaking truth. So I'll just go along. That is not the mentality of a prophetic church. There were different kinds of prophets in the scriptures. Different kinds of prophets. There were court prophets. Court prophets were close to the political power. They were in the house of power. You know what an example in the Bible is of a court prophet? Nathan, who confronts David in that power structure, and he says, you're the man. David had abused his power. He had abused his office as king. And Nathan, knowing that he could have been killed, knowing he could have had his head chopped off, literally, confronts him in his error, in his sin. There were court prophets. There were wilderness prophets, like John the Baptist, who were not close to the centers of power, but they, they were no less committed to offering truth to the power structures and truth to the people of God with respect to their covenant obligations. There were court prophets. There were wilderness prophets. But then the Old Testament tells us that there were false prophets. And I want to go back and revisit the passage that was read earlier for us in Jeremiah 23. Because I believe God has some words for you. Jeremiah 23, beginning with verse 16. Now what you need to appreciate and God is that Jeremiah is framed up as the true and healthy and faithful prophet. And God has a word for all those who took up the office of prophet but did not discharge their responsibility in faith and truth. And this is what the Lord says, verse 16, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. You know what vain hopes sound like? It sounds like this political party is going to bring in the eschaton. That's what false hope sounds like. This party entering into the the presidential office is going to make it all right. Then we're going to get this thing back on kilter. Or then we're going to keep this ship aright. No, 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 no. That's called vain hopes. Don't be a prophet who offers vain hopes. He continues. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. 
for all the free-reign spirituality that says it's all good. We are family. I got all my sisters and me. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. No, 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 no. Don't talk about our divisions. What unites us is stronger than what divides us, right? All the rhetoric that says keep your exclusivity away. And for those who are tempted to say, yeah, you know, it's fine. Like, they're really good people, though. Like, I, you know, they're decent people. They're really engaged in, 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 in civic good. And, and they're, they're generous people. And they, they do this and they do that. You know, it's okay. Make up whatever sexual ethic you want. Now, don't get quiet now. This is what the scriptures teach. Make up whatever sexual ethic you want. You know what? It's okay. Fight against abortion, but don't really care for people once they get out. It's okay. No, no, no. Jesus is flipping tables of the Democrats and the Republicans because this is not our ultimate destiny. The ultimate destiny of the Christian is not a Democratic future or a Republican future. It is a theocratic future. Christians all over the world and all through time have worshipped and been faithful to the Lord before liberal democracies ever came on the face of the planet. They worship in, in broken kleptocracies. They, they worship in totalitarian regimes. They are faithful to the Lord all over the globe where there's no actual state. Christians have been faithful in all of these different Places And our call is not to be duped into thinking that our political vantage point is what brings us toward a closer expression of glory. No. Jesus is flipping all that. But let's continue to hear Jeremiah. No disaster will come upon you. No. No, no. He's saying disaster is coming. And prophets let people know. Prophets warn them. But, but I just want to say a quick word to those who are like, man, why is all the judgment? Why is all the judgment? Here, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. If you're driving down the road and you come upon a sign that says the orange signs, is the road construction signs, and it says bridge ends in a thousand feet. And you say, Psh, they can't judge me. And you keep on driving. You're going to be in a bad way. That sign is not just judgment. That sign is actually a, a form of responsibility and care for you. Because there is a particular vision of flourishing there that says you won't do well if you drive off a bridge. And what Christians are saying is we won't do well as human beings if we don't operate according to the moral and ethical fabric that is given to us in Scripture. We won't do well. Our society won't do well. We need a higher truth to overcome all of the ways in which we are prone to wander. And you know what the ultimate problem is, Jeremiah says, of these false prophets? Verse 18, for who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? You know, that is ultimately the problem with all false prophets in the church who go astray from the global and historic ethics of the church. They have not stood in the Lord's counsel. They have not heard from the mouth of the Lord. They're trying to fit him in rather than to fit themselves into his world. It's a different way of engaging. But I need to move on from Jeremiah. One day we'll do a whole sermon on that. There are many who are failing in their office today. And the message of the prophets is simultaneously the message to the prophets. You see? It's important. We must learn to feel and dislike our condition, family. 
That's part of the purpose of life in this world. We must learn to dislike our current condition. Prophets help others to cultivate the right sorts of dissatisfactions. Politics in this world are designed to dissatisfy us so that we will learn to long for a kingdom. Are you disappointed with politics? Good. You're supposed to be. <laughs> Do you see? We're supposed to be utterly dissatisfied with this. And though there are many goods that come out of our democracy, and thank God for it, this is not all there is. This is not it. And our dissatisfaction should chasten us and direct our hearts to what will satisfy. And that should make us the most engaged kind of people. We must not allow our desire to be liked to obstruct our prophetic office. I like how Rabbi Abraham Heschel puts it. This is what he says. He says, prophets must have been shattered by some cataclysmic experience if they're going to be able to shatter others. Do you see what shattered the church in this passage? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's because we've been shattered by this truth. All our pretenses of righteousness have been shattered by Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. And our hope has been lifted. It's in this way that we will be able to shatter in the most wonderful way the false selves of our neighbors. We want to shatter the false self so that they can be their truest, most healthy self in union with Christ. Christians must have been shattered by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's only in this way that we will shatter others' false selves. I'm going to come down to some more important points here. Okay? This is important for y'all. Many Christians suffer from what Charles Taylor has called the ethics of inarticulacy. And what he means by that is this. The ethics of inarticulacy is a way of life guided by moral convictions that lack any meaningful theological background. I, I stand on this moral principle. Oh, oh, okay. Where's the theological grounding? Well, you know, Jesus says love. Thanks. That was robust, right? <laughs> no, the ethics of inarticulacy means that so many Christians, yes, many of you in the pews, do not have the ability to ground your moral convictions in Scripture. And that's what makes many of your moral convictions immoral. And they play their way out in your politics. We're called to rootedness in the historic Christian faith. We must ground our moral convictions biblically and theologically in communion with the global and historic church. We have great clarity on right and wrong is another way to put it. We have it in our text. And it's not always easily translatable when it gets into everyday life. But yet and still, we have an ethic. We have a moral framework that we must be faithful to as prophets. Here's the deal. It is often true in our political moment that Jesus is crucified between two criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Both blaspheme him and make a mockery of him, and yet it is through a prophetic church that he continues to cry out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the invitation is for criminals on the right and on the left to look to Jesus and say, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, and to hear him say, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Come on. And we're not told which side the 
the, the, the forgiven one comes from. And you know why? It doesn't really matter for our purposes this morning. It doesn't matter which side of the political aisle you're on. It matters which side of the cross you're on. The one that continues in open mockery or the one that calls out for mercy. Another point I want to make is this. What's it mean for us to be a prophetic church? This. The church is not to be found at the center of a left-right political world. The church is not to be found at the center of a left-right political world, a compromise, as it were. No. The church is to be a species of its own kind, confounding both left and right and finding its identity from the center of God's life. That's different. That's different. Peter's comprehensive claim in verse 36 is that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That takes him out of this this plane between Democrats and Republicans. And it further takes into consideration the global and historic community of faith. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Michael Ware, in his book called Reclaiming Hope, puts it this way. He says, the crisis for Christians is not that we are politically homeless. The crisis is that we ever thought we could make our home in politics at all. It's revealing if you say, I'm politically homeless. It's telling you that you were duped into believing you could make your home in a political party at all. Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, goes further when he says this. The crisis in American church has got almost nothing to do with being liberal or conservative. It has to do with giving up the faith and discipline of our baptism and settling for a common generic U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. Brueggemann ain't come to play with nobody. We've given up our identity, our baptismal identity. To be baptized in a union with Christ is to be united to the Christ who is a prophetic Christ. And to take up a prophetic role. But even more, to take up the role as his beloved, secure. Not needing to stand on all of our battles as it relates to our political convictions. Our truest, deepest political conviction must pertain to the kingship of Jesus and our citizenship in heaven. And that must guide everything. That must guide it all. What's this mean for your work and relationships? It means that you don't have to hide your Christian moral framework or ethical commitments. In fact, you must stop hiding. You must stop hiding. You certainly must not trade your intellectually robust, cross-cultural, time-tested convictions as a Christian for a presumptuous, disingenuous, secular neutrality. In case you haven't noticed, the culture is not neutral. Y'all have been discipled all along. (laughs) That's the thing. The world never stops making disciples. And when the church stops, then we get what we have now. No resistance. No moral or ethical sanity prevailing. Very few people who are willing to step up and say, enough of the madness. (laughs) Enough of the madness. That prophets were a, a, a breath of sanity in a world gone mad. Where are we? Don't don't let anyone make you hide. 
Everyone in our culture is bold as a mug with their ethics and morality. They are not ashamed or embarrassed about telling you just what's on their heart. And why should you be? What are you afraid of? Don't be afraid. It's in letting people in to how you think and how you ground your thinking that you become such a, a meaningful prophetic witness to the world about what is good and true and beautiful. There is no ethic on the face of the planet that is more cross-cultural. There's not one. I think we call the bluff of the culture as it relates to diversity. Call their bluff. How diverse? You know, I see a lot of call-out culture, and then that person gets wasted. But you know what? You know what the, the prophetic church does? It doesn't just call people out. It calls people home. Calling people out without calling them home is cruel. And that's all our culture has to offer. We have something more beautiful, and it's called grace. We have someone more beautiful, and his name is Jesus. He's the one who, who we owe our loyalty and allegiance to. Nothing more cross-cultural, nothing more intellectually robust. Time-tested wisdom over the ages that has been embraced across the world and through time, and it has built steam and has a, a moral backbone to it, a fixedness. It's not afraid to say to people, you're wrong. Even though I know you feel it very deeply, you're wrong. That is killing you. I'm inviting you to life. We must return once again. Charles Matthews, a theologian out of UVA, says this. He says, Believers' alienation from civic religious engagement will end only when they stop reinforcing the extremist monopoly on religious discourse by shunning such discourse and instead take it up again. He says, whenever level-headed, biblically and theologically grounded, Catholic Christians in disengage from public discourse, the extremists then take the stage. Do you see that? Do you see that playing out? That's exactly what plays out. But we must re-engage because that's the only way in which the extremism will be tempered. And there can be some semblance of civic civility, I guess you would say. We're called to engage, not to disengage. We're called to be present faithfully as Christians, to think as Christians, to vote as Christians, to, to, and what I mean by voting as Christians is this. It's not tied to a particular candidate. It's tied to a moral and ethical framework that takes the well-being of neighbor into consideration, that takes the impact of our, our financial and economic choices into consideration. It's not a Christian framework that necessarily provides the way for more greed to stomp on people. It's not a Christian moral framework that does not step up for the vulnerable in the womb, at the border, everywhere. I know, write me the emails, I don't care. I don't care if I sound conservative, I don't care if I sound progressive, I care if I sound biblical. And the Bible cuts against it all. So we have to hear the word of the Lord and not be false prophets, a la Jeremiah. Let me close with this. There's this new app that I became familiar with, it's called Be My Eyes, have you heard of it? 
Be My Eyes is an app in which people who are blind or who, have, who are uh, visually impaired can hold up an object on the app and someone who's a volunteer can tell them what it is they're seeing. Like, for example, if they're trying to pick and they don't know which one is grape Kool-Aid or cherry Kool-Aid, the person can tell them it's the one on, on the right. Be my eyes. It helps those who cannot see to see. And if we live beautiful and faithful lives in this world, if our heavenly citizenship makes us the best kinds of earthly citizens in earthly kingdoms, if we speak the truth in love with a prophetic identity, understanding, empathy, and compassion, and conviction, our neighbors just might say to us, be my eyes. Help me to see this. Maybe I'm not seeing it because the witness of your life is so compelling, so beautiful, so endearing. I felt like I got stung in love. I felt like I was invited back home, as it were. I'm, I'm not under any delusions that I'm going to answer all of your most pressing political questions. But that's not my job. I'm, I'm under obligation to tell you the most pressing political answer, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that your citizenship is in heaven. And you must search the Lord's counsel so that you can be a faithful prophetic witness in the world. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.